Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we have Mr. Jazz Singh, author of The Worst Indian Ever, who is coming from the UK to discuss his experiences with opioid medications, opioid abuse, as well as navigating depression during the pandemic. So Jazz, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. So before we jump into some of the more poignant questions, can you tell the audience a little bit about your story and how you began from using medications to then abusing medications and how that kind of exacerbated your depression? Yeah, absolutely. I've always been sort of a, a holistical type of person, you know, not to use medication. And obviously when you have depression, you always have to have antidepressants and even having that after a day, I really did struggle with that. Um, just makes you feel like a zombie. But yes, yeah, so I had depression for about five years. And I would say 2018 is when, as well as the mental health difficulties, my physical health just dropped. Um, so I had a car crash and it caused a lot of back pain, hip pain, leg pain. Then I got diagnosed with sciatica. Uh, and I was just against taking medications and they said look there's literally no other option to do uh, which we'll go into more but as a result of that I basically got addicted to painkillers um, and I always say to people it's crazy that I was only addicted for not even a year but it's crazy how you can go from zero to 100 so quickly and as a result of that I did attempt suicide um, through an overdose Wow, sorry to hear. Uh, tell us a little bit about that experience. So you have a history of sciatica, you were yeah. in a car accident, and then you went to your physician for a workup for your pain. Talk to us in this experience and how you initially prescribed opioids. Yeah, it's really frustrating because me and a lot of other family members, they never go to the root cause in like a holistical way. It's always painkillers and I did say is there any alternatives and I did receive like physiotherapy um, but I thought physiotherapy was you know when you see the athletes and they have all these like people helping them and stuff it's nothing like that uh, over here it's literally a couple of stretches which they tell you to do um, which isn't obviously beneficial you can just YouTube better stretches um, but yeah then they basically said there's nothing else but painkillers. There's nothing else we can do. I had an x-ray done. Uh, done. Uh, I didn't have an MRI scan done. But yeah, so then when I received the painkillers, I was really adamant. But within the first week, I, it just beat me up so much. And then I noticed that it was sort of helping me in my depression in terms of making me feel numb. But with painkillers because with alcohol you can tell someone's drunk with smoking you can tell someone's taking too much because their, their lungs aren't good with painkillers there's side effects but because it kills the pain it's the most perfect sort of way to get out of the pain and that's why I got so addictive to it that's really interesting and thank you for sharing that uh, talk to us a little bit about this transition when the opioids were not just about the pain. They were also about the depression. You talk about killing the pain. So you seem to imply that there is a 
euphoria almost that you can feel with an opioid. Talk to us a little bit about that transition. Yeah, absolutely. Because like I said, you know, um, just before we were talking, like I never was, uh, alcohol never fussed me. I've never took drugs. I never smoked. But when it comes to painkillers, yeah, it definitely gives that euphoria. Because for me, as soon as I'd wake up, I'd feel beaten off. And I think what didn't help was uh, I was doing weights at the time because I've got like a natural, naturally skinny build, uh, slim frame. And then I thought, okay, so if I take these painkillers, give me a boost for the day and I can get through the pain. It was actually making me unstoppable. But as a result of that, my body wasn't basically realizing what I was doing to myself because. I kept moving forward and forward and it wasn't until I came off the painkillers, which I'll speak about a bit after, that I realised how much pain I actually was going through and how drastically painkillers can alter the way your body are. Um, and then I used to like mix painkillers too, because going back to what you said about the euphoria, it's crazy what it does to you. It's like having energy drinks put in that tablet and I can see why people get so addicted to it. That's interesting. So paradoxically, by taking opioids, you put more stress on your body. You essentially put your body through more pain because you essentially had this, I don't know if this is the right term, but you essentially felt superhuman because the pain yeah. was effectively gone. Can uh, When did you notice that you were actually putting yourself through more stress and incurring more pain? Okay, I'll definitely say there was a moment around the end of 2019, and I think a couple of days, I, I was off the painkillers for about a day or two, and I thought I'll go to the gym, and I went to go warm up, and I just felt this non-pain literally go through my back and my leg, and I had to only do an arm workout after that, but I thought, I couldn't actually walk out the gym. And then when I started taking them, I noticed that the pain just basically went. So it's crazy that when you mention that superhuman term, it does make it that. But in terms of the transition, where it was like, okay, this is a problem, it was definitely, I noticed there. But to hide away the pain and my mental health difficulties I just binged as much as painkillers as I could to sort of get back to that euphoric state and then I basically I was around 20 years old when I was abusing the painkillers but I knew by 21 I wouldn't basically be here because it just trapped me so much and when you go to the doctor's if I'm addicted to painkillers, I'm guessing they're going to tell you to have antidepressants or something like that, which I was given. And I thought, I can't have more medication because I'm addicted to painkillers. So it's going to cause me even more stress. So it seems like that wasn't a great decision on their behalf. So talk to us a little bit about your communications with your physicians and your healthcare system as a whole. So at a certain point, the opioids became less about the pain management and more about the euphoria. So there's a psychocognitive component that came yeah. right away. What did your physician say when you were discussing this with him or her? Yeah, I mean, basically, they, 
when I overdosed and attempted suicide, that's when the, the conversations came by. And obviously I was told about taking antidepressants and stuff, but there wasn't any, there, it was strange it, because I overdosed on painkillers, but it seemed like it was sort of, well, okay, you haven't died. So, you know, just go back home. There wasn't any psycho information in relation to what painkillers can do to you. And I think as a result of that, that's what made me sort of become even more hesitant towards going to the doctors and seeing physicians. So what they actually told me was obviously seek counseling and stuff like that. But I kind of wish to know, is there actually damage right now that I actually don't know about as a result of the painkillers that have been taken? Um, and that's something that as a result of that, you know, I've been clean off painkillers and I do ever wonder if there's a time I have to take painkillers, could there be a severe reaction to my body? Could it shock my body? And there isn't any sort of physical aspect to the painkillers that have been explored. So that's interesting. Uh, talk to us a little bit more about this transition. So you start the opioid medications, you are in this transition where it's less about the pain and more about the euphoria, and then you essentially escalate to the point where it's an attempt at suicide by overdose. Can you give us a highlight on that transition, how that took place? Okay, I think actually something to pinpoint. Um, so the painkillers I originally were, were given, they did have side effects. Um, so I had to have the sort of gut, uh, gut medication too, to sort of reverse the effects of the painkillers. Um, and then I found out a particular painkiller basically has no side effects whatsoever. Um, so that transition is what actually caused me to become even more super, superhuman. Um, and then whilst I was taking those, because they were just so good at everything, like putting me to sleep or making me feel better or getting aid in my low moods, it seemed like it had all these different aspects that it could do to me. But, but for the transition, because, because it was so addictive and it's, it's basically the best thing that can help you in terms of living your day. So that's why it's so difficult to reject them. And it wasn't until I noticed obviously after my overdose, I can live a life without them. But there's not enough information to us about painkillers it's just about obviously the side effects um, but what I did notice for me that I was definitely hiding it so I did have signs that maybe I was becoming an addict um, because I think over here and especially in the Indian community when it comes to painkillers it's just like taken like it's like you know um, just like you know mints or something it's just oh, I'll have one there I'll have one there so I think in terms of our own community as well, we don't even know what we're actually consuming ourselves. That's interesting you mentioned that. Um, unable to kind of recognize the effects, but part of that is also, it's so helpful for your daily functions. So you feel as if, as you had mentioned, it's the best medication for your quality of life. Uh, when did you ever notice that you're balancing your daily living, your activities of daily life 
with the medications and almost it was a balancing act. Oh, I was definitely in denial, but I could see. So do you mean in relation to like how the painkillers were aiding me in a sense? Essentially, like how it was helping you go about your day. You mentioned it was the best medication for just going about your day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, even me, I'd, I'd sleep like for seven or eight hours. I'd literally get up straight away. I could just walk around campus when, when I was studying whilst others were tired. Um, and even go to the gym. So I'd literally, as soon as I'd finished my assignments or essays, I'd go straight to the gym. Uh, I'd still be, so I'd be out from like 8 a.m. to like 8 p.m. at night, just working or going to the gym and stuff. So it definitely excelled my progression. And then when it comes to how I live now, I always think like, oh, am I doing enough or am I not being productive enough? But compared to before, it was excessive because I was blocking everything out. But it allowed me to produce and progress a lot in my physicality, even though I was struggling with obviously my sciatic issues. So in terms of like what it did for me, like I said, it was just this energy thing that made me keep going constant. And I could literally balance everything out, dating life, gym, healthy eating, my assignments, essays, seeing family. Um, I, I actually think like, could I ever get to that stage again without the painkillers? Wow, that's interesting. Uh, did your family and friends notice a difference in your activity and how did they communicate that to you? My behaviours definitely changed. Uh, I became more closed off, more selfish in the terms of like, I can do this myself. I don't need any help. Um, mood swings, definitely, for sure. Uh, even a teacher noticed it because I wasn't attending uh, lectures. I used to just skip out on lectures and just do some other work or listen to music or something just around the library. Um, so they definitely did notice it. I could hide it for I hid it away from family. It wasn't actually until one of um, my my ex's moms just said like, because I said, she said, how's your back? And I said, it's good. I said, I've been taking painkillers that aren't mine. And she was like, that's a bit silly, isn't it? And I said, no, I said, it's fine. It's only painkillers. Not knowing that those painkillers have led to my overdose. So definitely there were people who noticed the change and I felt so ashamed because my brother got married around the time I was abusing the painkillers and I just felt so lost. It's supposed to be a happy event and I was just so miserable, you know, and you're surrounded by all these people that are really there to help you and are ready to help you. But because they don't know what I'm going through, I didn't ask for help. Oh, wow. Thank you for sharing that. That's a pretty poignant. Uh, you had mentioned that part of the transition and escalating the dependency into addiction was a change in the opioid medication you took. Can you talk a little bit about that change and how you communicated the request for that change to your provider? Yeah, you know, in terms of uh, requesting the change, so when my painkillers sort of initially finished, I did say to the doctors, you know, this, this isn't working for me. It's causing a lot of stomach problems and it's just beating me up. And that's when sort of they they sort of were like, 
there's not really much we can do, you know, just come back if it happens again. I think they referred him somewhere else. Um, but in terms of like requesting for more information, I didn't do that. Um, and the reason why the transition happened is because I found a particular painkiller doesn't give you any side effects. So I actually took them off a family member that I was living with. And as a result of that, that cause actually made me feel even more worse, but physically much better. So mentally, I, I literally used to get no thoughts. Um, I was just like a zombie basically walking. Um, and it's really unfortunate to say that the last place I would go to seek help would be my doctors or physicians, because um, I don't think they get the seriousness of painkiller addiction um because a couple of months ago i fell off my skateboard and they said do you want some painkillers and i said look i used to be addicted to painkillers i can't take any and i don't think they understand the severity of addiction to painkillers where if it's an alcoholic or someone who's a smoker they would be like no you can't take it but it seems like when it comes to opioid addiction we're encouraged to take them even though we were addicted to them. That's interesting. Let me ask you um, a, a two-part question that's a, a bit personal. So the first part of the question is, how honest or perhaps dishonest do you feel you were in prior engagements with your physician? And the second part is, how did you feel, how did you recognize that there was a lack of understanding or a lack of compassion from the physician himself or herself. Talk to that dynamic of how you communicated the level of trust and honesty relative to the level of just lack of caring. Yeah, you know, I definitely was open. I did actually go to the emergency room with a, with an ex-friend because she knew it was beating me up. And I did say, like, I'm struggling here. And then obviously they gave me painkillers, so I was the actually I do remember the doctor over there she gave me the painkiller not known as addicted to them and I took it and I said I still feel the same and she was shocked like I had done something wrong like what you're fine and I was like oh yeah you you know I'm waiting for something to happen here but in terms of being open it wasn't until I had my overdose where I was open but prior to that I literally just gave up because I thought besides painkillers, what can they really do for me? Um, and it's not to blame them. Obviously, there's only a certain amount of aspects that they can do for me. But in terms of a personal connection to my doctor, it was not there. And as a result of that, like I said, that was the last place I wanted to be because I thought there's no reason why they can help me. And then it wasn't until sort of after my overdose, I was open to a particular doctor about the ways I can get help. But even still then, I don't think they realized I was addicted. I wasn't just depressed or even suicidal to put that term out there. I was addicted and there's, there was virtually no support. And it came at a time where obviously lockdown uh, happened because of COVID. So in terms of professional help after my overdose, I received none. Wow, that's interesting. Uh, in the United States, there is the whole 
opioid epidemic that has consumed the prescribing of opioids from a healthcare standpoint and the perception of opioids among the public. Is there something like that in the UK? And do you feel that there needs to be something a little bit more stringent like there is in the United States? Yeah, absolutely. And it's unfortunate what's going on with the States with the opioid um, issues, but at least they're saying we have an issue. Over here, it's downplayed and it's not taken serious enough. And also, it's they're just so cheap and accessible for, for everybody. And unless they're not prescribed, you can still buy similar painkillers for like half the price or even just ridiculous prices i'm talking like under a dollar under a pound I uh, don't legally know. legally yeah legally yeah oh wow um, yeah they're, they're very cheap over here and it seems like like i said before it's it's like it's just like candy over here it's people take painkillers like it's nothing not knowing the physical long-term effects there have been the odd documentaries over here in relation to sort of how painkillers are affecting us and addictions but it's so strange like the only addictions that are talked around here are alcohol smoking and gambling and painkillers seem to be this outcast type of addiction like it's not real like how can you be addicted to painkillers so we are uh, lacking a lot of awareness over here and that's really interesting. Uh, not only is there a cultural difference, but there's a healthcare difference as well. The UK obviously is a nationalized healthcare system. So you have yep. uh, access to care. There's never an issue where you can't afford care because it's provided. Were you ever offered procedures, injections, or any sort of stimulators or therapeutics beyond just the physical therapy and the medications? No, nothing like that. Um, it's something that I think they should implement because obviously someone is addicted, they're so beaten up and you lose so much physical strength. And I wish in terms of physicality, there was a form of a more in-depth analysis of what's actually going inside my body. And I think that goes to what I said before. If I take another painkiller, could I die? Could I react to it bad? Because would it shock my body? So unfortunately, no, there's nothing like that. What is the uh, addiction uh, uh, services and options available in the UK healthcare system? In the United States, there's a pretty well-established model for healthcare in terms of addiction services. Is there something like that in the UK? Yeah, definitely. It's good, but expect waiting lists. Um, Unless you can't afford it, then you are likely to end up homeless. Uh, many former addicts are basically on the streets and that's just due because they have to wait three to 12 months just to even go get a referral to see even a therapist or a counsellor and I think over here we rely too much on therapy and counselling which I don't think is a bad thing but we need to sort of advocate how we can implement a healthier lifestyle in relation to exercise and meditation And obviously we know all of that stuff, but we need to highlight the neuropsychological effects it has to our body and our brain. Not just exercise is good for you because it makes you feel better or meditation is good because it makes you feel better. We need to just get a bit more deeper as to how it can change our brain 
um, so neuroplasticity. But it's definitely here. But honestly, if you're addicted, unless you, there was talk about willpower, which some people have, some people don't. But unless you're not rich, um, you are likely to stay addicted and become homeless or die. Wow, that's a, it's very powerful because part of what we look at in the United States is expanding healthcare to offer more services. But what you're suggesting is that a lot of times expanding services creates gaps where there may be services, but then there's different financial disparities despite the expanded healthcare. Yeah, so I mean, over here, there are particular individuals who have overcame their addictions, but it seems like they had that support network, which unfortunately, if you're an addict, you may not have that in case, I don't know, your wife or kids don't want to speak to you or your family's, you know, just sick of you too. So I think we definitely need to keep, I mean, awareness is one thing, but I think we just need to keep highlighting that whether it's addiction, just try and reach out as soon as possible. But what I, I have noticed over here, it seems like less people are, are going to healthcare and more people are going to sort of local organisations, local charities, which is nice to see. It's good they're seeking help. But it seems like our healthcare, the number one place where we ha would have to go, it seems like the last place to go. And um, when I converse with colleagues and family and friends, and we're just talking about health concerns, for example, and they'll ask me, have I been doctors or have they been doctors? They'll just be like, oh, well, you know, I have to wait too long or what's the point? Or they'll just Google something, you know? So it's really unfortunate, actually, what's happening over here. Then in relation to sort of cultural backgrounds, the way that the sort of addiction support may work for a Caucasian cohort might not work for someone who's from the Indian background because of the way they're sort of biologically constructed or the way they understand information. So the healthcare now, because of our, a lot of communities being in the UK more, we need a more diverse integration to our healthcare system. And it just seems like now it's just either or. It's like you either do this or we can't help you, but we need, we can't stop that anymore. We, we can't have that anymore. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned the cultural component to it. Uh, in addition to uh, ethnic issues, uh, culturally, do you see some differences in the UK and the United States that you feel are improvements or you feel that could be improved upon? So if you were to look at the United States and look at the approach we're taking to the opiate epidemic, given your own direct experience, do you see positives or do you see more negatives with the United States? Uh, well, firstly, it's being talked about, which is a huge, huge positive. I think just because of how big the country is, it's so difficult to implement a healthcare strategy that will be beneficial for all. But I think you have an upper hand over us just because you are speaking about it. But obviously the huge negative is um, uh, obviously the, the way individuals over there are, are taking advantage of the healthcare systems over there. And that is essentially destroying people's lives because they're getting taken advantage of financially. So I'd say the biggest negative over there is 
unfortunately these organizations or mafia or I don't know the specific names um, basically taking advantage of these individuals and just sucking them dry so that's interesting uh, you noticed that all the way from the uk that essentially addiction medicine has a significant financial component and it's no secret that people look at addiction medicine addiction health from a financial standpoint with the services offered uh, contrast that with the uk with their expanded services is there still a financial element you seem to insinuate that even though there's expanded care there still are financial tiers so it's inescapable in a certain way would you not agree oh yeah no it is inescapable to a certain degree i think what is good now there are the local charities and communities but if you were to go through the healthcare system although we don't have to pay for it you're costing your own life basically because you're waiting months on end but yeah unless you can't afford a rehab center or something like that you're like i said you you'll unfortunately become homeless or it will result in death um and then comparing it to the u.s our negative is we don't have much awareness. Um, Painkiller addiction isn't really seemed like a thing over here. Like we look towards um, uh, the US when talked about opioids, but over here, it seems like the term of painkillers or opioids even is downplayed. Um, but I think for the positive, there is free healthcare, but it's not it's not concrete enough to help someone out of addiction. So it's not really a strong positive, if I'm being honest. I, I like that. Uh, in the last few series of questions, I wanna uh, kind of end on a positive note and talk more about solutions. Uh, implicit in what we're discussing are these addiction facilities that cost money, that often require out-of-pocket expenses from the person suffering the addiction or friends and family. Do you feel like in your own journey, those facilities were necessary? For example, could the same level of care be afforded through telemedicine or through a facility light platform, if that makes any sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the best bet for that is, it seems like over here, there's a lot of bulk buy-in. So whenever you go to purchase medicine or healthcare, you have to pay up front. Um, it's not, it's not necessary for this kind of thing. Yeah, when it comes to counseling or therapy, you pay as you go. So every session you pay a bit. And then obviously with rehab centers, it's always like you've got to pay 2,000 now and 2,000 when you finish or, you know, 1,000 for the first four weeks and something like that. So I think if we get a strategy of paying monthly and that way leads to solutions long-term, because a lot of rehab centers, they're lasting, what, about one to four weeks, and then you let it go, and then it's like, okay, continue with your life. So I think if we just do a long-term plan of keeping the uh, people with addictions longer, but also elongating the payments so that it's affordability that they're happy with, rather than saying, you know, give us two grand, you'll be fine in a week because that's not going to work out. Yeah, it, it, it's difficult. It's uh, difficult to kind of balance access to care versus cost of care. And it seems like no matter how much you expand or privatize medicine, you inevitably are left with that balance. 
Yeah, and then in relation to solutions too, I think when we go to the doctors as well, it's all like painkillers are always the first and last resort and anything you get in the middle, you're lucky to even get. Um, and that's what we're struggling with as well. And I do know a few people who just have painkillers then again, just like that, because there is a, no other solution we are offered. So we're trying to look for alternative ways and the alternative ways not to go to the healthcare system, which is, is supposed to support us. But I think a beauty now, like there's so much access to online services and also online holistical methods that we can find out about. But then with that, people who are addicted as well, what do they do? Because I'm sure they're probably not in a position to Google things if they're out on the streets. So we need to just find a way where it's affordable. It's not always so it's not always that we have to give painkillers to the individual um, and I think if we strike that balance then people would just be able to be a bit better not the best but just a bit more better yeah nice nice appreciate that now Jazz before I let you go can you uh, let the audience know a little bit more about your book the worst Indian ever where they can purchase it and if they want to get a hold of you how they can contact you yeah, sure. I just want to say thanks uh, for letting me be on your podcast. It's uh, been amazing. I, you know what? When it comes to sort of mental health awareness, I always seem to talk about my depression. So in a sense, it's kind of refreshing talking about my addiction because over here it's just not talked about. But um, yeah, so The Worst Indian Ever, it's actually out today on Amazon. Um, I told it sort of after me, but I'm sure there's there's worse people than me. <laughs> and um it talks different, it talks about different chapters. So I've got depression, suicide, uh, relationships, and about psychology. But my main chapter that I've catered this book is alcohol. Um, that's a huge issue in our community. And that could be another five podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's out on Amazon. Um, today as an ebook and the paperback should be uploaded soon and yeah if you want to contact me i'm on uh, instagram uh, jazz single author or awareness by jazz and my email is um info.jazzsing at gmail.com okay awesome thank you for your time appreciate it thank you take care